Anyway, in, um, in the 1970s, Stanford University did uh, an experiment. A guy by Philip um, Zimbardo and a bunch of social researchers thought they'd do an experiment. Uh, and, and what they did is they decided to create a mock prison. And they put the mock prison in the basement of the psychology department building at Stanford University. They got labs and they made them in the prison cells. They got uh, barred doors with painted black and put them on to make them look like prison doors. They turned the, the broom closet into a solitary confinement uh, section of the prison. And then what they did is they, they, they made an adver- put an advertisement out to see if they get people to volunteer for the experiment. And they got 75 people apply for the experiment. And they found the 21 most normal people to be part of the experiment. And then they split them in two. And they said, half of you guys are going to be uh, prison guards and half of you are going to be prisoners. And the prison, uh, uh, the ones that were prison guards, they gave them the dark sunglasses, they gave them the uniform, they gave them instructions. Your job is to keep order in the prison. The other half they made into prisoners. And they didn't know when they were going to arrest it. So they go to their homes. In the middle of the night, the Palo Alto police come in. They arrest people. They handcuff them. They take them to the, uh, the uh, police station. They fingerprint, them. They, they fingerprint them. They give them trumped up charges. Then they blindfold them and they take them to the fake prison. And what happens next was really, really interesting. When they got to the prison, they, they, they got all those people that were prisoners to, to strip down, to put on uniforms, and they became identified by numbers that were put on their front and on their back. And the goal of the experiment was simply this. They wanted to figure out why prisons were such nasty places. Was it because of the people within them or the environments that they found themselves in? And so on day one, this is what happens. The prisoners come in, and at 2 a.m. in the morning... The guards, who are pacifists normally, decide they're going to go into everybody's cell, wake them up, and make them do push-ups on the floor at 2 a.m. in the morning. Then they get them to line up against the wall and do arbitrary things. Whatever the guards could think of, they made them do these sorts of things. The next morning, the prisoners, who again, who are normal people, are so infuriated by what happens, they, uh, they create a riot. They barricade themselves in their prison cells. They rip the numbers off their front and the back of their uniforms. And they, they, they won't comply with anything. Then the other normal people that were the prison guards, then they break in t- down the barricades, they get fire extinguishers and they hose them down and they strip them naked. They get the ringleader and they go and put him in the broom closet. They put him in solitary confinement. Uh, it, was, it was so shocking and it was so traumatic that after 16 hours, one, one person just got so hysterical they had to leave the experiment. And then over the next few days, these prison guards did all sorts of despicable things to the prisoners. They would, they would get in their face and they would yell in their face. They would, they would torment them. They would handcuff them and then put bags over their heads and make them walk up and down hallways just for the fun of it. After a few days, another four people leave in rage and hysteria and anger and depression for all sorts of different reasons. This whole experiment was meant to go on for two weeks. After six days, Philip Zimbardo and his team, they pull the plug. They close it down. And the conclusion is this. It seems pretty obvious. The conclusion is 
Circumstances change us. We are affected by circumstances more than we care to admit. They, they impact us. They rob us of peace. They challenge our notion of who we are. They rob us at times of our identity. One of the guys that actually found himself in the experiment said this. He, he said, I realise now that no matter how together I thought I was inside my head, my prisoner behaviour was often less under my control than I realised. What's he saying? Circumstances controlled me. They changed me. Ever been having a good day and somebody comes up to you and says, what's wrong? And you go, nothing, but I'm irritated now <laughs> that you're asking me what's wrong. Right? Or, you're, or um, you're having a great day, you've been out shopping, you get to the car and there's a scratch along the side of your car. Right? The circumstances change. Maybe you're having a bad day and somebody comes along and they say, hey, you look beautiful today. Or they, they tell you how you, you've inspired them in some way. And they flip the script of your day that way as well. That circumstances, external environments, changes. And I think that's what makes remarkable what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. He says these words. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And he writes those words from prison. Not a fake prison at Stanford University. He writes him from a real prison in Rome. And, and I think he's answering the question that perhaps many of us struggle with, perhaps you're struggling with right now. There's so much going on around us. The question is, how do I find contentment? How do I can find contentment when everything is so crazy and chaotic around me? How do I, how do I find this? Where do I go for this? And, and the word that he uses for contentment is autakia. It's a... It's, I think it's the only time that word's used in the New Testament from memory. And it, he, he actually nicks a word from Stoic philosophers. It's their word for contentment. And Stoics have an idea that, hey, you can find contentment in life. But their idea was simply this. They say you actually can't find contentment in life uh, when you give your heart and mind over to things you can't control. Their idea of contentment was this, that contentment was to, to get be content independent of circumstances, to have poise, to not be tossed to and fro by things going on around us. And they said you can get that sort of contentment. Or takia, that's what they said you can get. But they said you can't get it when you give your heart and mind to things you can't control. So it left them in a place where they became um, either... They would either ignore the things around them or they'd become indifferent to things around them. They said, that's the key to contentment. So they said, don't, don't, don't strive for success because you might not ever achieve it and so you won't get a contentment. And even if you do get it, you'll worry about losing it. So you, it'll rob you of contentment. Don't go after success. Don't go after family. Or don't see family as a source of contentment because you'll, you might have a great family, but you always end up worrying about them. And they, they say, those things you can't control. So be indifferent to circumstances. That was their solution. And they said, here, their idea of contentment was this. The only way you could find contentment was if you focus on things you can control, your virtue, your courage, your humility, your, your honesty, your integrity, the way you react to things. In other words, they're saying, where do you get contentment from? You're not going to get it from out there because you can't control any of that. You can control who you are. So your contentment is only found in self. And contentment comes out of self-sufficiency. That was the idea of the Stoics. And here's Paul. He grabs their word and he says, oh, you know this idea of contentment? 
I'm going to use your word. I'm going to challenge the source and the nature of contentment because it's not found in self. I want to argue that it's found in something very, very different, someone very, very different. And what's the source of contentment? Well, verse 13, Paul says this. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And we know who the him is, don't we? We're in church. It's always Jesus, right? <laughs> so it's, that's the answer. Who's the him? It's Jesus, right? And Augustine put it this way. The early church father, he said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. These are the words of a man that was in his younger days was a, was a hedonist. This was a man who, who was a bit of a rebel who tried to find himself through, through different philosophies. And he's saying, I tried all this stuff and I couldn't find rest until I found it in God. He says, that's where I found my contentment. And if, you, if we pin our hopes on our own strength, our own self-sufficiency, Paul's trying to alert us to the fact you'll never find it there, but you'll find it in Christ. He's the only one that will find contentment. A guy by the name of George Finlay wrote a book called Christian Doctrine and Morals. And he reflects on the, the, the tension between the, the, the stoic position and, the, and Paul's position. He writes this, he goes, The self-sufficiency or contentment of the Christian is relative. An independence of the world through dependence on, upon God. The stoic self-sufficiency pretends to be absolute. One is, content, one is contentment of faith, the other of pride. Cato, who was a well-known Stoic philosopher, and Paul, both stand erect and fearless before a persecuting world, one with a look of rigid, defiant scorn, the other with a face now lighted up with unutterable joy in God. So what are, what's he saying? So you've got two guys with their ideas of where do you get contentment from? And he goes, one is telling you you find it in yourself. The other is saying you find it in faith in God. And one, his idea of contentment is that he's a rigid determination just to endure life. And the other says, no, it's actually found in joy. That's the difference that, that Paul's painting between the contemporary idea of where do you go and find contentment in the world at that time. And so it sort of sounds easy. If I left the message there, it sort of sounds easy. The secret contentment, contentment is union with Christ. And it sounds easy and effortless, and it sounds immediate. But it's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, I have the quick fix for contentment. That's not the way he writes these words. He, he writes it this way, verse 11. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What's he saying? I, I learned it. I didn't come overnight. I didn't find it immediately. It happened over a period of time. It happened through a variety of circumstances. He says, even when I had plenty, I didn't find it. Because sometimes we can think, I know contentment is found in Christ, but I think it would be Christ plus plenty. right? Christ plus a lot. Christ plus success or achievement. And that's the way we sometimes work. And One of my favorite quotes from a book has got to be um, John Krakauer. John Krakow was asked in uh, 1995 by Outside Magazine to join uh, a commercial trip to Summit Mount Everest. And at this time, there's a lot of media attention about commercialisation of, of people who weren't traditionally mountaineers summiting Mount Everest. So in 1995, he got asked. It was a childhood dream for him to climb Mount Everest. And so when they asked him, he really wanted to go, but he couldn't get there. He said, I can't make it in 95, but I could go in 96. Would you wait for a year? And they said, Yes. 
And so in 1996, his, his childhood dream occurs. He goes to Mount Everest. He joins a commercial trip. He, he summits Mount Everest. He gets to the top of Mount Everest with one foot in Nepal and one foot in Tibet. And he writes these words. I'd been fantasizing about this moment and the release of emotion that would accompany it for many months. But now that I was finally here standing on the summit of Mount Everest, I just couldn't summon the energy to care. Right? Dang, I love it. I, he's saying, you know, I'm literally standing on top of the world. It's everything that I had dreamed of and it just, who cares? It didn't give me the, the sense of satisfaction and achievement and joy and whatever else that I thought it would. Boris Becker, former Wimbledon champ- champion, said this. He wrote, I'd, once, I'd won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed, money, cars, women, and everything. I know this is a cliche. It's the old song of the movie and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace Becker at this point he says around this time he even contemplated committing suicide he's saying I had everything and yet I, I found myself empty it never gave me the contentment the joy the peace that I thought success and would it would and so what's Paul saying about contentment he's saying it's not in a moment of success it's not in the achievement of necessarily great things he won't find it there it's not even in in, in indifference it's not even found in self. And it's certainly not found in plenty. He says, but it is learned. He says, you can learn this. It's not immediate, but you can learn it. And here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, you know, when I was in need, you know what I learned? That contentment was only found in Christ. When I had plenty, you know what I learned? Contentment was only found in Christ. When I was hungry, you know what I learned? Contentment was only found in Christ. When I was well-fed, guess what? Contentment was only found in Christ. What I found, no matter what I was going through, the highs and lows, all these different rhythms of life, he said, ultimately what I discovered was contentment was only found in Christ. And he's saying, I'm not giving you this abstract theory. He's saying, I'm telling you from my experience. I can say here and here and here, in this moment, in that episode, in this location, all these different times that I've gone through, I found contentment has only ever been found in Christ because that's where I got it. And he says, there is no other way. And then he uses another word to try to hone in on this idea. He uses, again, another word that's only ever used once in the New Testament. In verse 12, he says, I know what is to be in need. I know what is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Is that that word secret? It's, it's a word that's used about these um, mystery cults, mystery religions that were around at the time. And they had this, they had this notion that if you could learn this sort of secret way of unlocking your connection with God, you would find contentment. So it might be, if you didn't have this sort of special kind of meal, that might get you connected with God or the gods, then you'll get contentment. Or the right ritual, the right handshake, the right mantra, whatever it is, if you can just find that right thing to unlock it all, then you'll get contentment. And so they are always looking for, what's the secret? What's the secret? 
And here's what Paul says. He goes, I've learned the secret. And he goes, do you know what the secret is? Life. This is life. Life in all its ups and downs where you choose to lean into God. Because that's the secret. It, it's when I lean into God, no matter what circumstance, no matter what, what was going on, that's when I found the secret of contentment. And notice what he doesn't say in this. I think we'd all prefer him to write this. Um, I've learned that when I pray, God just changes all my circumstances. But he doesn't say that. He's writing this again from prison. He's, he, he, he doesn't know how this is going to unfold. He says, I, I just, I'm telling you, he goes, I've just learned. I've been through ups and downs. I've been hungry and well-fed. I've been living in plenty. I've been in want. And tell you what, the way I got through is when I lent into God. That's where I got the contentment from. And he says, you only have to, the only way you can know this is to learn this. He said, I can't tell it for, to you. I've learned it. And he goes, I want you to learn it. And the way you learn it is that you go, if you want to learn the secret, the secret is when you go through life, when you're hungry, lean into God. When you're well-fed, lean into God. When you've got plenty, lean into God. When you're struggling, lean into God. Because the only way you'll find that he gives you contentment is actually to lean into him in those moments. He goes, I'm not giving you an abstract theory. I'm just giving you an example from my life. This is what it's like. And seek out God in all circumstances. In fact, he says, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Again, he's not asking God to change the circumstances. And here he is in prison. You'd think he'd be asking God to change the circumstances. He's in prison possibility of torture, possibility of death. You're thinking, you're saying, God, I want you to change my circumstances. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's reminding them of the nature of contentment and the fact that he's got contentment and the calm that he, he's got in that moment and the calm that he's learned over a lifetime of leaning into God. In fact, in Philippians 4, 6, 7, he reminded this earlier, them of this earlier, he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he's saying, the peace of God, when you feel anxious and overwhelmed, the peace of God isn't, doesn't always come by God removing every obstacle, every barrier, every fear. It comes by the, allowing the presence of God. It's not, it's, it's not what you get rid of. It's who's with you in this moment. And he says, he will guard your heart to mind. That guard is a military term. And the picture is this. Imagine you're in a, in a town or a city or a village and the, the marauders or attackers, you know, are looking to come to your town or village and you've got guards on the outside. And he says, when you've got guards on the outside protecting you, You'll sleep well at night. And what he's saying is, God's not going to stop the marauders or, or, or attackers coming, but he's making sure that you've got protection in the midst of that. And so you'll sleep well. And that you'll have peace because he will guard your heart. Because that's the answer. It's not that he's getting rid of those things. It's, it's who you're doing those things with or how do you experience those things. Who is standing with you? It's reminding you that you are not alone in those moments where you feel overwhelmed, where you feel anxious. It's just lean into him. 
And does that mean that, that our contentment, is pulled in the saying, is our contentment just found in, in us and us alone? It's just us and God and we don't need anybody else. We actually start this section in verse 10 where he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And he's saying, I, I'm, I rejoice about you guys. And in fact, throughout this book, as I mentioned this earlier, that he rejoices all the time about this church. He says, I rejoice that we're partners in the gospel. I rejoice in your gifts. I rejoice that I was able to send Ephroditus back to you because I know you were worried about him. And, and we can rejoice in all sorts of things. But some of them are fickle. I rejoice in my beloved Tottenham who won last week. Right? <laughs> and the reality is, sometimes though they're up and sometimes they're down. And sometimes they win, but sometimes they lose. And we can rejoice in great things in life. We can rejoice in somebody's marriage or anniversary or some milestone. But it's here and then it's gone. And Paul's saying, uh -uh. Christ, when you rejoice in him, when you lean into him, he's not up one moment and down another. He's not here one moment and, and gone another. He's not on the throne sometimes and off the throne at other times. He's with us all the time. And he's not here just for a moment and then fleeting and it's gone. He's saying he's with us all the time. And life changes and circumstances change and the valleys come, but there's always Jesus. And in an ever-changing world, our constant is Jesus. And Paul says, I've ordered my life around Christ and I rejoice in you that you guys are doing the same thing. That's what he's saying. Because right at the start of Philippians, he... Paul, depending on who he's writing to, often introduces himself in different ways to different churches in their letters. And in this one, he doesn't pull out, I'm an apostle, or I'm, I'm someone important. He identifies himself this way at the beginning of Philippians. He says, I'm a doulos of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant. I'm a slave. That's who I am. And so I'm really satisfied in that description of who I am. I'm just a slave or a servant of Jesus. I give my life to Jesus. I order my life around Jesus. And he said, I rejoice. Can I look at you guys? I reckon you're the same. He goes, that fires me up. And see, after speaking about contentment, then in verse 14, he jumps back. He said, yet yeah, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more aid more than once when I was in need. Paul saying, I look back, I've got a history of you guys taking care of me and standing with me. And he said, you've sent me a gift. Am I, am I grateful for the gift? He said, yeah, of course I'm grateful for the gift. But he's saying, the nature of our friendship, he goes, I want you to know the nature of our friendship is I don't look to you to complete me. I don't find my contentment in all these things. He's saying, I find my contentment in Christ. And why is that important? Because he's saying, I want you to know, the friendship that we enjoy, he's saying, it's not conditional. It's not conditional whether you support me or not. It's not conditional about what you do for me. I get to enjoy you just for who you are. 
And I get to enjoy that we are partners in the gospel and we get to do this together. He says, that's what fires me up. And yeah, thanks for sending the gift. Because sometimes we have conditional friendships. You, you know those where the, the person only even wants your time when they need something from you. They want some advice or they need some resources. They want something from you. It seems like it's always um, a conditional friendship. And Paul is saying, that's not the nature of this because we don't need each other to make each other content. And so we, don't, we get to enjoy each other for who we are, not just for what we bring to one another. And that fires Paul up because he says, I look at what you guys are doing and I get why you send me this stuff. It's because you love Jesus the way that I do. And when I'm in change, you're saying, Paul, guess what? We want you to know we're right there with you. And then he writes, just to make it clear, it's not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, we're We're friends. We give and receive. One of the early, the first marks of a friendship in the Greco-Roman world was the mutual giving and receiving, that you look after one another. And he's saying, hey, we're not looking for each other to find contentment. We're content in Christ. And so we just give to one another. And he's thankful for what they do, yes. But what drives him and what fires him up is that he sees a people that are starting to discover what he's learned that their ultimate contentment is in Christ. Because when he was in Thessalonica, and even when he's in Rome, most scholars think this isn't a church that had a lot. But of all the churches, they still found a way to make sure Paul was cared for. Right? They learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. It's like, Paul, we're with you. Our contentment's in Christ. We just want to be with you and bless you. And it's not, this isn't a conditional relationship. We're not expecting anything from you. We don't think you're manipulating this, this in any way. But we're just on the same page as you, and we want you to know we're on the same page as you. Uh, scholar Tom Wright says this. He says, God was delighted that their faith, hope, and love were finding this practical expression. That's what fires Paul up, that their, their, their faith, hope and love, their contentment in Christ was finding a practical expression. And that's my hope for you guys, for me, for all of us that would find this contentment in Christ, a life where we're less tossed around by the circumstances that come and go, that we live a life that is marked by the peace that can only be known in Christ that we've learned to turn to him in any and every situation. A life where we get to do life together and we get to know the joy to say, hey, this is a friendship born out of a partnership in Christ, that we, that we found a contentment in Christ and so we get to enjoy each other for who we are, not for just what we bring or give to one another. And I want you to know this life and the life that Paul speaks of where you can say, you could pen these words for yourself where you say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
that no matter what, and maybe that should be your mantra over the next week, if you find things that are making you anxious, if you find things that are troubling, if you're finding things that are feeling overwhelmed, if there's circumstances that are threatening to rob you of the moment of joy, remind yourself what Paul's reminding you of this. The one who learned the secret to contentment says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And my hope is that you know the contentment that Paul speaks of. Let me take a moment to pray. Father, as we, um, as we go into this week, Lord, there is so much chaos around us at the moment. So many things that threaten to rob us of joy. So many things that want to distract us from you. And Father, I think what light we could be to this world, that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the anxiousness, in the midst of the uncertainty, that we have this contentment and joy that is evident because we're learning, we've learnt, and we continue to put ourselves in positions to learn the contentment that you offer, the peace that you offer us. And so, Father, if we have a great moment this week, help us to lean into you and to thank you for it. If we have some challenges, help us to lean into you. We have moments of plenty when we have moments of want. We have moments that are high and moments that are challenging. That, Father, will be ever mindful of you this week and that we'll lean into you and that we'll learn and know this contentment that Paul speaks of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.